Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Hanberg. I'm a forensic pathologist and medical examiner, and this is Becoming a Medical Examiner. On this podcast, I talk to forensic pathologists about this interesting job that we have and what it's been like for them becoming a medical examiner. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Pastelnik. So, Dr. P, would you mind uh, saying hi and introducing yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. Pastelnik. I'm the Chief Medical Examiner in Fort Bend County, Texas, and I'm a board-certified forensic pathologist. Excellent. Um, So the way I usually start is just by asking, you know, everyone seems really confused about what this job actually is and what we do. How do you explain what we do? Uh, Medical examiner, as was explained to me in a pithy little statement uh, from my great mentor, uh, Dr. Joe Davis, and he probably got it from one of his mentors, uh, uh, Lester Adelson or Russell Fisher, was that we are the we are the physicians who are privileged to look under the skirts of society. We, uh, we are the ones that are charged with being the last line of defense of the, uh, the, um, of society. We determine cause and manner of death of people who die under suspicious, unnatural, and unlawful circumstances that are people who die under, uh, circumstances that are threats to the public health. Uh, people that uh, uh, aren't are expected to die, but maybe and ne- neglected or traumatized. Those are the easiest people to murder. Somebody that you expect to die anyway. We are the the last watchers on the orderly mess of society. That's great. That's a much more poetic response than I've usually gotten. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great way to describe it. And you also touched on something that I think will be. It's one of the reasons that I'm really excited to talk to you because you have a lot more exposure to some of the sort of big names in the field than I ever got the chance to have, starting with uh, with Joe Davis. Many, many years ago, my my uh, my uncle, Gerald Rodman, my mother's brother, was, uh, was a rheumatologist, world famous rheumatologist. He was eventually chairman of um, rheumatology at University of Pittsburgh. And my mother always held him up to me as a great example of what you should do. Look how wonderful Gerald is. Look how many people he helps. Look, he's lecturing all over the world. Look, he's, he's starting clinics all over the place. Um, he was a fabulous, fabulous man and uh, a great example for me. My mother, um, like me, uh, would, would like to tell stories. And they were always Uncle Gerald's stories. One of those stories was... <clears throat> One day, they, uh, <coughs> excuse me. So they grew up in the Bronx. <coughs> they grew up in the Bronx, and my uncle went to uh, uh, downstate. And uh, one day, uh, when you, when uh, one day he brings home this cat uh, body, and he takes uh, his his mother's best stew pot and starts. A cat, and a cat's body, a cat's body, and he, uh, and all of a sudden, my mother is home. My mother was uh, nine years younger than him. Um, it was five years younger than him, and she's saying, "Gerald, what is that stink in the house?" And he said, and he tells her, "I, I, I want to get the skeleton out. I deflesh this cat body. I want to get the skeleton out." And she says, "You're using our mother's best cooking pot. She will kill you when you get home." <laughs> so it was winter time, and he took the whole thing and he threw it out in the backyard. That's when back in then time in the Bronx, they had backyards in the 
in their uh, brownstones. Um, and that night it snowed and it stayed snowy for months. And then one day the snow melts and all of a sudden this decomposing cat's body starts stinking and his mother notices and says, Gerald, Gerald, what is that? What she would, she spoke in Austro-Hungary. So she says, was ist das? And she looks out and she says, Gerald? And he explains to her that he he did this and, and they had been using the pot, you know, over the last several weeks or months. Anyway, it was one of the silly things that my uncle did that my mother would regale us with over the, over the decades of my life. One day I'm sitting in the afternoon uh, conference in Miami at the Dade County Medical Examiner Office. And we're going over our cases and there's Dr. Davis uh, going over the case with the fellows and the scenes we went through and stuff like that. And I, I don't remember the circumstances of it, but it brings, he loved to tell stories as well. And he was telling stories and I, uh, and that uh, when he, back in medical school, when he went to downstate and they had, at that time when you were in medical school for humans, they had cat lab and cat anatomy. Interesting. And he's, tell, he's telling this story about he and his anatomy partner, Gerald, and Gerald took home this cat because he wanted to get the skull out of it to boil up. And he's telling this, regaling us with this story. I had it to do with probably a, a skull that we had found in Miami. And I say, to, and I look over to him, I say, was that Gerald Rodman? And he goes on for another couple of sentences and then he looks at me and he says, yes. That was Gerald Rodman. How did you know that was Gerald Rodman? I said, that's my uncle, <laughs> Gerald Rodman. And he said, you're kidding. You're Gerald's nephew? And I said, yes. So we had a fab- we had an even more fabulous relationship after that. So that was, that, that told me I knew I was in the right place. So you have a, so many stories. And one of the things that I noticed is you also seem to always have some connection to everyone that I ever bring up, everyone I interview. If it's not a, a brother-in-law or an uncle or a friend, you, you seem to have really been, uh, you're a big part of this field, or at least you're very invested in this field, huh? The answer is yes, I, I am. Um, we, I, my generation, um, honestly, is probably one of the earliest, if not maybe the first generation of pathologists to go into forensics as a true profession, as a choice, as if you were in medical school, you choose to go into psychiatry or internal medicine or whatever. The forensic pathologists that came before us, the, the, the great names, they were the pioneers. They were creating the profession from, uh, from its nascent beginnings as just you know, the, 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 the guy who handled bodies or could stand the side of blood or who started to uh, organize the knowledge base of forensics and started to quantitate things and, uh, and start to publish the textbooks that now become the, the, the basis for our knowledge and stuff like that. And those people came from other fields. And then they migrated to forensic pathology. My generation, uh, and I count among myself, uh, people like uh, Randy Frost, Steve Cole, Greg Davis in Kentucky, John Hunsecker, uh, Elizabeth Alraj, Marcelo Fierro, that sort of stuff, those folks. We're the ones that went into forensic pathology because forensic pathology had been established by that time. So it was not a 
just a newborn. It was now a viable medical practice with its own set of boards. And during my lifetime, uh, forensic pathology stopped grandfathering people to become forensic pathologists. You had to, uh, you had to actually have specific training to be a forensic pathologist. So, yeah, uh, and those and those periods of time when we started what was then the the name listserv, uh, which was our email uh, discussion group, uh, it was it was a rollicking time where principles, practices, cases, policies, procedures were all being developed and discussed very, very. Uh, aggressively in our in our profession because we needed to standardize. So that came up during my early part of my career, and I was part of all those discussions for good or for good or for ill. I mean, yeah, well, it's very interesting. I mean, being maybe you weren't there for the true birth of the field, but you were certainly there in the adolescence and when everything was sort of being put together, and you saw the inklings of what it has since become. Um, but that means that you you. I, I guess, when did you even find out about forensic pathology? Did you know about that in high school? Not at all. Not at all. I was, I was dead set on being a, a, a vascular surgeon. In high I school? In, oh, no, I, no, in high school, I was, I was, in high school, I was going to be a doctor because okay. like I said, my mother, my mother brainwashed me with my uncle Gerald. So I always knew <laughs> I was going to, I, I always knew I was going to go to medical school. But while I was in medical school at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, there was this absolutely sad. I, I was I was I was into fountain pens by that time. I got actually I got more into fountain pens when I was in medical school. And uh, I was writing with a fountain pen one day, and this uh, vascular surgeon, his name was Gregorio Sicard, an unbelievable vascular surgeon, um, was there. And I did a rotation with him, and he saw my fountain pen, and he said, "What is that?" I said, "It's a fountain pen." He says, "I like fountain pens too." And he had the standard ones you buy at stores, or whatever. I said, where did you get that? I said, well, I go to antiques show and stuff like that. So Gregorio Sicard and I would, would he would pick me up and we'd go antiquing um, <laughs> in, in, in Southern Illinois and, 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 and areas around St. Louis looking for fountain pens. And I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be a vascular surgeon. So for, I started off my residency. I started, I was going to, I got into a general surgery residency at the University of Connecticut. And I'm in my internship and I'm post-call. And for whatever stupid reason, they, the powers that be in your residency program thought that they would have some sort of academics. You know, te- you know, instead of just being, you know, scut monkeys in the hospital, they thought that they would, um, you know, try and teach us something. So they would have a lecture series once a week. And I was post-call when I was at Parker um, um, Hospital. And I was a back of the room person because the, the seats went to the very back wall and you could just lean your head back and fall asleep when they turned off the lights. <laughs> and that's what I usually did. And one day there's this person comes in and it's going to be, and it was H Wayne Carver, the third Wayne Carver, Dr. Carver, the chief medical examiner in Connecticut. And I was prepared for at least an hour, hour and 15 minute nap because I was post call. <laughs> sure. And, and he starts as a big, tall guy. He was at least six four, six five, uh, gregarious, outgoing personality. Big, effusive guy, just booming voice. Dominated the, any room that he was in with his life and his enthusiasm and everything like that. And then he starts throwing up pictures of gunshot wounds. And then he starts talking about ballistics. 
and he starts talking about uh, wound pathways and the science of gunshot wounds. And I sit bolt upright, and I I am enraptured for 90 minutes of his lecture on gunshot wounds. And at that moment, I said, I want to be like him. So a couple months later, uh, toward the end of my internship, I called down to Yale, and I asked, do you have any... Uh, openings for pathology residencies, residencies down there and stuff like that. And they said, you know, we actually do. We had a resident that kind of, you know, had a, you know, an issue, a medical issue, a medical psychiatric issue, and is taking a year off. So you want to come and interview? So I did. They offered me a position. And uh, from there, I did, I did at least three months rotation at the medical examiner office in, in Connecticut. And it went on from there. And I, then I interviewed with Joe Davis and he offered me a fellowship and that's how my career got going. Oh my God. There's so much there. I have to ask a couple of questions. So first of all, you said you got more into fountain pens when you were in medical school. So how exactly did you get into fountain pens? How does that ho- hobby come about? My, my mother was, uh, it was, it was my mother. She, she, we were, um, we were, uh, we were at a, uh, a sidewalk sale in some nice part of Philadelphia once. And we're going up and down uh, the street and stuff like that. And we walked past a stationery store. Well, actually, let me, let me, let me back up. I'd always been into pens, uh, ballpoints. I remember the first rollerball ever hit the market. It was by Bic. It had, a, it was a cat rollerball. It was, you know, we used to get big stick ballpoints for like 79 cents for a dozen of those. And, those were our pens that we used in school. Then this rollerball came out, and it was a dollar seventy nine for one pen. Oh my god, <laughs> premium! Ooh, anyone anyone who could get one and use it in school, we were the big man on campus. Uh, so that was like the forth. status symbol. That was the AirPods that was Pro. The status of the time. symbol. If you got the rollerball, and then my aunt, who was a neonatologist. She started, all the drug reps would start handing out these pens, you know, with like wow. a, with, with their drug paraphernalia on them. So when we go over to her house on the weekends for dinner, she had all these big rollerball pens, and I asked her, "Can I have one of these?" She said, "Oh yeah, they get my to us like crazy." <laughs> so I was, I was, I go through school with um, these drug rep pens. Anyway, so I was always into the different types of uh, pens and pencils. Then one day, we're at my mother at this uh, sidewalk sale. All these all these stores are on the street selling stuff and putting stuff out. So we walk past the stationery store and they've got their little pen boxes open with Waterman fountain pens. And she sees Waterman on them. And she says to me, Stephen, I used a Waterman through all my time in college. And she went to Hunter, uh, Hunter College in, in, in New York City. I want you to have a Waterman. And she brought me this purple marbled Waterman Laureate pen, which I still have. And I hated it. I couldn't <laughs> use it. It would it would leak all over the place. It caused them. I didn't know how to hold it. All that sort of stuff. My hands would be covered in blue ink. Blah blah blah. So I kind of put that down, and then that was the end. That was the end of that. And um, for that, then years later go by, and I'm in medical school, and uh, and uh, I'm at a and I'm at an antique show, and there's this guy with this case of fountain pens, and I said, Hey, can I have? Oh, can I buy some of those? And I, and I pick up a couple of them for like 10 bucks each. Um, and, and I write with them, Oh, this feels really good. And then I, uh, but it doesn't fill with much ink. It's it got a, it, it, it was a Parker 51. It was a vacuumatic. 
Anyone who's nutty about fountain knows what the vacuumatic is, and it takes the diaphragm. Well, those latex diaphragms rot over the years and with the acidity of the, of the ink. So I, I want to repair this thing. Uh, I want to take it to get fixed. So I find this store in the West County of St. Louis County, and there's a pen repair guy in the back. It's one of those split doors. And the top half of the door opens, and the guy's in the little room in the back with the with the with the <laughs> okay. monocle on and stuff like that. And he sticks his head out. This old gray-haired guy. And he looks at. He, I, I knock on the door there, and he opens. And he says, "What do you want, kid?" And I said, "I've got this fountain pen, and it doesn't want to hold very much ink. Just a couple of drops. Can can you fix it for me?" And he looks at me and he says, "It'll cost you more than that pen's worth to fix it. <laughs> Take it back home and just." Go get a regular pen and write with it. It's like, man, you're the pen guy. <laughs> so, so then I start researching and I find Fountain Pen Hospital in New York City. And they, not only do they sell and maintain uh, vintage pens, they sell the uh, repair tools and repair manuals. And that's how it got it into repairing my own fountain pens. And, hey, I can do this. And then my antiquing and my fountain pen collecting craze went like right to the roof because I had no fear. If I got a, a cruddy old fountain pen, I could then change the bladder, straighten the nib, do all that sorts of stuff. And then that's how it really got started. Um, and then, you know, I started getting into the customization of it. And then uh, people wanted me to customize their pens. When I got here to Texas, I hooked up with Drumgoules, uh, Larry Drumgoul, and their, and their uh, luxury goods place. And we became friends, and uh, I started doing his repairs and customizations. And then... Uh, my collecting went through the roof and I got written up in several worldwide fountain pen collecting magazines. Um, and then people started coming and sending their pens into me. That's wild. Why, I, you took why, that. Why fountain, why fountain pens I have in a clue. But that's what it is. <laughs> well, I mean, well, that's not your only thing. And we'll get to some, some of the other uh, very unique hobbies that you have. But I want to also mention that you then somehow turn that fountain pen passion and just having a fountain pen with you into a pretty unique relationship with who it sounds like was your first sort of inspiration uh, in the hospital, this attending that was a vascular surgeon. And then you had the relationship where the two of you would go antiquing in different states. That's wild. I definitely did not have that experience in medical school. You, you know, you, you, you never know where you're going to connect with people in, in a way that your main interaction with them is completely different. I mean, how many how many physicians do you think are inophiles? Okay, I, I I know several physicians that have thousands of bottles of wine in their cellars, and and all that. They're really into it. You'd never know it when their white coat is on and they're rounding and or in the operating room or whatever. But then all of a sudden, something comes up in conversation, and then it's like, wow, you you guys you folks share a passion for it, Dick. Uh, uh, Dick Suveron, who was the, uh, the odontologist in uh, Miami. He still is. He, comes in, he still is. Um, it, he, he comes in one day to do a, to do a dental examination on a, on a decedent. And for whatever, it, and he, he, came, he came from his office. So, so first of all, he drives up in his Ferrari 308 with the, with the medical examiner parking uh, thing in the, in the <laughs> dashboard. Yeah. Around his neck, I see him in the morgue. Around his neck on a leather lanyard is this, Tooth, this 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 animal tooth, and I asked him like, "What is that thing?" And he tells me that it's from a uh, some some uh, what it was. I think like a red stag or something like that. And it's pretty big. And I was like, "I don't know anything about red stags." 
And then we started talking about it, and then we realized that he's a monster hunter and rifleman. So we started talking about rifles and scopes and stuff like that. You know, he doesn't volunteer that stuff unless you ask him about it. So you, physicians are, we have passions outside of medicine. That helps keep us sane. Um, I, I think that physicians, even are excellent physicians who are just so singularly focused on medicine, there's, they're excellent physicians, but I think that they, I think that they miss a lot in life by being so single-minded about me- medicine, you know, wake up, work, go to bed, all that sorts of stuff. And yeah. then maybe take a two week vacation. Yeah, I definitely agree. That's one of the things that I tell people who are pre-meds that get really worked up about, Oh, I don't know if I can still go to medical school. Cause I haven't been in school for two years or I went and did this or that job, or I did this other degree that wasn't science. And I tell them that I think ultimately that kind of thing helps. It's not going to make you the youngest person in the class, but it will give you other experience that will make you probably a better doctor, but at the very least it will make you happier. Correct. Correct. Uh, and, and the one thing is I realized is that, um, that, uh, what was it? What, what the saying was, uh, surgery is an easy residency and a hard life. Whereas, um, whereas pathology is a hard residency and an easy life because when you're the surgeon, the patient's life is on the line and you're ultimately responsible for teaching and all this sorts of stuff and making sure every lab is correct and every x-ray and CT scan are checked and everybody's prepped and, and ready to go to the operating room, so on and so forth. Whereas pathologists, you got residents. Okay. And these, and there's thing called textbooks and now there's things called the internet. Okay. So your residents, uh, the, the residents just are sponges of knowledge. And then when you begin to, and resources and they bring you articles, they, they, they have all the chapters read and all that sorts of stuff. Um, well, at least when we were residents, <laughs> I don't know about lately with all the, anyway, I won't comment on that. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, but when you're, the, when you're the staff pathologist, the cases are brought to you nicely worked up because that's how your resident learns. You don't, it, the resident does most of their learning in pathology beforehand. They look at the slides, they come to their own conclusions, they look for differentials, they go look up papers, they bring stuff, they're ready to absorb the knowledge at the microscope with the pathologist, with the staff. And then they go over it and they discuss all what they've learned and then it becomes ingrained in them. But 90% of the work has already been done by the pathology resident. So the pathologist, amongst all specialties, pathologists are the best cooks. They have, they have better outside interests. They are more well-rounded and less single-mindedly focused than the medical specialties. Sorry, than, than the other medical specialties in general. Of course, there are some, there are some fabulous surgeons and stuff like that that are like, that, that go scale and Kilimanjaro or whatever. But um, pathologists are very well-rounded because we are cut across all medicine. We can appreciate everything. And we've got time to enjoy our lives. What are, what's that old, the, the old joke is, what's the, leading cause, what's the leading cause of death amongst radiologists? It's getting run over in the parking lot by the pathologist leaving at 3 o'clock. <laughs> I, I don't think they do. I at least don't hear as much, uh, as much of these interdepartmental ribbing jokes anymore. I think that that is something that has just sort of gone away with the uh, – 
with the work hour regulations and things like that. I think everyone's now just struggling to do what they can. Right. Um, so I, w- I did want to ask a little bit about when you, when you did switch residencies, you went from, I, I guess, so you were a general surgery intern, not a vascular surgery intern. Cause they, I don't know that they have an integrated pathway or what, but so you were a general surgery intern and then you transferred Correct. into, was it an anatomic and clinical pathology residency at Yale? No, it, Yale is one of the, is one of the few places uh, left in the United States and, and they'll never change. I think there's like two other residencies in the United States, uh, two other pathology residencies that offer APCP as well as CP only, as well as AP only. And I was an AP resident. So for the listeners, uh, APCP residency two years of anatomic and two years of clinical pathology. And then you're come out as a board, board eligible anatomic and clinical pathologist. And then you have to take both boards. They offer lab medicine, which is clinical pathology and anatomic pathology. Those are three years each of, of only those specialties. And I was an anatomic uh, pathology resident only, um, I guess in, 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 in to follow in the footsteps of uh, Dr. Carver. My, at that time, he was my, my mentor. And he was an anatomic pathology resident um, only at University of Chicago. Um, so I did three years of anatomic pathology. My fourth, my fourth year, we had qualifying years. So you had to have, uh, to, to sit for your boards back then, you had to have four years of residency. Um, so I had that one year of internship. Um, and uh, and that's, that's how it was. And that's the way it still is today in, at Yale. Interesting. I didn't know that about Yale. So... What was that residency like for you? You came from a general surgery internship where you were doing rounding and seeing patients and pressing on bellies. And I assume at least to some extent you were doing some operations and then you, you really switch gears when you switch into pathology. What, what was that like? I had done a lot of operations. My, 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 uh, my operative book, we had to keep track of everything to work on. I had done 260 cases, probably, probably uh, 75 to hundred as first surgeon. Wow. Um, as an intern, as an intern. And because, uh, because I had an, I had an aptitude from it and the aptitude for it in surgery is you have no fear. Okay. Um, and my, my staff saw that very early on that I knew how to handle a scalpel, that I was really facile with human anatomy. Um, I knew proper tissue technique, handling, not manhandling, all that sorts of stuff. And as I, you work with them, they, they get to trust you. Um, the, the biggest surgery that I did as an intern was uh, when I took out as first surgeon with this, with the staff surgeon, uh, assist being my first assistant, uh, he let me do a right hemicolectomy all by myself. Everything with the, EE, with the EEA staplers, the TA staplers, all that sort of stuff. It was fabulous. Anyway, so I, so I was, I was Mr. Anatomy. So when I went that when I came down to Yale to, to pathology, the chief resident at that time um, made up the was making up the, uh, the the rotation schedule for the next year, and she and she said to me, um, she said, Stephen, uh, I know we're just you're just coming from a surgery uh, residency, uh, we're going to let you ease into pathology. So your first uh, your first month is going to be on the autopsy service. I said, okay, sure, no problem. You know, that sort of thing. Um, um, I, I didn't have any. I didn't have any issues with that. I, I, one of my highest grades in medical school was was pathology and histology. So I, I knew I was 
reasonably capable of what I remembered at the microscope. So that's fine. Stick me in the autopsy in the in the autopsy suite. And um, uh, and uh, so the, the way the way Yale was structured, it was on uh, the me- the medical school and medical center is structured around what's Cedar Street. Okay, and it's like a big T. At the end of Cedar Street, uh, the big hospital was across it. But Cedar Street exited, you know, came from the front of the hospital, went down several blocks. And on either side was the medical school hospital, all the clinics and all that sort of stuff. Yale had done everything and they had joined all the buildings underground and crosswalks and buildings had joined. They knocked down walls and stuff like that. So we were at the very opposite end of Cedar Street, three blocks away from Surge Path, which was in the hospital. And we were, guess where? We were in the basement. And we were in the uh, in the autopsy suite there, and um, and uh, the uh, the uh, uh, you'd sit at your little cubby and you'd be reading your textbook or whatever, looking over something. All of a sudden, this black, dusty rain was coming down on your head, and it was the last place in the entire hospital that had all the asbestos abated. Oh my god! And so, <laughs> so, we, so we so we were sitting there for you know I don't know how many years of pathology residents sat there with asbestos coming off of the pipe insulation and stuff like that. Anyway, so my first rotation, uh, sorry, so first day, uh, they, they, they were going to try a new sort of curriculum teaching methodology, and the uh, the uh, staff for that was uh, fabulous uh, pulmonary pathologist who loved autopsy. His name was D.J. Walker-Smith. Tall, lanky guy. I think he was from the Carolinas. Had a slightly... He had a slight draw. I don't know exactly where he was from. But he, um, and, 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 you know, full professor at Yale, so he'd been there for decades. So myself and my partner, the two of us on, his name was Fred. Fred was an MD, PhD, and I forget where he came from, but Fred was a lab rat of all lab rats. I mean, he was a smart guy, but he wanted to be, he wanted to just do basic science. So there's Fred and myself on the, on the spot, on this body, and there's G.J. Walker-Smith who says, and I'm going to do this first autopsy of, of the, you know, the January interns, the January residents, actually not January, July residents. And Walker Smith says, okay, here's the scalpel. And he puts the scalpel down on the body. And he says, okay, Pascomic. So I want you to go from uh, the shoulder down to the center of the chest and then the other shoulder down to the center and then go down the abdomen. And that's where we're going to open the body. And who's going to show us the procedure of doing it? An autopsy, and I took that scalpel and I went like Zorro, <laughs> and I had I had that body opened in like two minutes, and uh, he looked at me and he said, "Okay, Postelnik, I'm going back to my office. Call me when you're done." And that was and that was it. So interesting. Uh, so that's the, all from the surgery skill. Well, not only that, but I had done a elective rotation in medical school in an autopsy pathology with. Uh, uh, with one of my lifelong mentors and friends, uh, Jeff Sackets. Um, he was, the, he was the, he was the professor at that time, unbelievable cardiac pathologist who just retired two weeks ago as chairman of pathology at, at the Beth Israel Deaconess. He was the head of, he was the head of pathology at Harvard. Huh. Um, and I, and I, and I had been calling on him for decades discussing cardiac cases and all that, sending him cases for consult, him helping me out and stuff like that. From being my attending in medical school, he became a lifelong, not just mentor, but a colleague as well. 
anyway, and he just retired, so I hope he's doing well. Who, by the way, his his daughter is a Claire Staffitz, who who's a fabulous cookbook writer, and she's got a whole YouTube thing and blog on cooking, and her recipes are oh, fabulous. Cool. So, so from that, I became um, the the head of the, the the chief tech in the in the suite in the autopsy. He relied on me when I was free, and I would go down to the autopsy when I had free time. Uh, during my other rotations, and he would help rely on me to help the other residents with anatomic dissections because they saw how facile I was with human anatomy. And I had, again, no fear of screwing anything up or whatever and be able to demonstrate the pathology of each case. Interesting. So you did a rotation in medical. So uh, I, I assume that in, when you were in medical school, they were still doing the uh, anatomy lab with a cadaver where you do sort of a slow over the course of many days, many weeks autopsy. But it sounds like you also had a rotation where you did autopsies in med school. Do you remember your first autopsy? It was an elective. Uh, and I took, that, I took that elective during what all medical students do during the high period of time that you're going to go be interviewing for your residencies. Ah, okay. So I did, I did, I did autopsy pathology and uh, my first, I, uh, um, I remember one of my two, I did two full autopsies by myself with the residents, um, with the, with the chief resident overseeing it. And then the, the staff would come in. I remember what the, one of them was, but the other one that I do remember, because I gave lots of, I gave, I gave lots of talks on it through the medical center because it was a very interesting case. It was a guy that had um, persistent um, pleural and pericardial effusion, had a, had a pericardial window, and he had lupus, and he had lupus anticoagulant syndrome. He had been treated, his symptomatology got worse and worse and worse over the years that he'd been in and out of the, out of the rheumatology department there at uh, WashU, and he finally passed away. So um, I ended up, I ended up autopsying him, and fabulous, Histology, sorry, fabulous gross anatomy with the uh, surgical interventions with the with the, the, the epicardium of the heart, just looking like it had been frosted over with uh, with you know pericardial fibrosis and and, and an epicardial fibrosis as well. And then we had the cytology from during his life. We had the cytology we took from autopsy. We had the pathology. It was great. So internal medicine wanted it, so I presented it at internal medicine grand rounds. Then rheumatology wanted it, so I presented it at rheumatology grand rounds and the surgeons had tried to do their thing with the heart and stuff like that. And that's why I ended up presenting at the pathology at, at the surgery grand rounds and stuff like that. And the attending on that was Jeff Stafford. So from that mm-hmm. we had, uh, um, we, we got, we got, a, we got a lot of mileage out of that one case. Uh, and that's, that's the one I remember. So interesting. Do you remember how I, I, I will, I will say this at that time, HIV was so new. That if anyone died from that anyone died from HIV, what they would do, and they were going to autopsy them because they autopsied all these uh, uh, people. Uh, they, they were still learning about it. They would do a rotation scan, take everything out on block from tongue all the way down to anus, and they would sit it in the big, huge fixation bucket. Oh yeah, uh, or trays, and they would not touch it for one week. It had to sit. That's that's how. That's what the state of the art was at that time of how to treat you know, highly infectious uh, things. Well, I think that's a, I mean, when you, you're dealing with some sort of pathogen that you don't know what's going on, that's a reasonable, safe approach to take. That's actually very similar to what we did uh, when COVID first hit and nobody knew exactly what was going on. And we thought it was probably similar to other corona, uh, coronaviruses. So 
we that was the policy at first was just to do a, a fix the entire block and we'll deal with it in a week because there's no way this virus is going to survive that. And, you know, obviously that has all changed since then. But that uh, I mean, I don't know. I think that's a pretty reasonable approach when you don't know what's going on. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. But again, that's I'm just, I, I, I made that remark to show, you know, my age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what, what was that like? I mean, it sounds like when you talk about that first autopsy, obviously you have a lot of reverence for the medicine of it. You talk about the physical findings and giving these talks that people were really interested in those medical findings. But what was it like for you? I mean, had you dealt with seeing a dead body before? Well, we had, well, we had, um, um, uh, the, the old fashioned anatomy lab, we had cadaver lab. And um, so we had all worked on these uh, cadavers. They were like, uh, you know, I honestly don't remember how many people were in my in my in my medical school class, but it was four students per body, and I think we had thirty bodies in the anatomy lab. Um, and uh, and our um, professor was uh, Dr. Peterson. Dr. Peterson was an old time anatomist. Dr. Peterson was one of the last anatomists that had a part of human anatomy with his name on it. And he, he had traced the root. He was the first person to trace the root of some nerve and it's the nerve of Peterson or whatever it is. Anyway, and he would, and all these bodies were fixed in phenol, not formaldehyde, phenol. Okay. So anatomy lab was on the top floor of the science building, the fifth floor, a, a, a windows on three sides of the thing. So we could vent the place out. There's all marble all over the place. And so it looked, if, you, if anybody remembers the um, the bathroom where Harry Potter met uh, Moaning Myrtle, and stuff like that, <laughs> replace all re- replace all the stalls, the, the the toilet stalls with anatomy tables. That's what it looked like. Okay, so Dr. Peterson is there, and he would do these bodies. He would we come over. He'd rotate around, and he'd assist us. Dr. Peterson, can you help us with this? And so on and so forth. He would do it barehanded. He never wore gloves. Yeah, that's and, a very old school way of doing things. But, but the thing is, is that we were all wearing, we would all have to wear latex gloves and then put latex, you know, surgical gloves over the top of them. And even then, after two hours of handling those phenolized bodies, our fingertips were numb because it was, it was the phenol was just penetrate two layers of latex and start coagulating, you know, your, your nerve endings, stuff like that. So we were all looking at Peterson. It was like, I mean, the, how can the guy drive? How can he, <laughs> how can he, how can he, how can he press the correct button on the elevator? I mean, he must be pickled from the inside. Anyway. <laughs> so that was my first dead body. And it was a, it was an elderly lady that had hip, hip, you know, arthroplasty and she had a triple A and all that sort of thing. These, these, these people that donated to the medical school, they would ask to, Anonymous, not not anonymous, but yeah, anonymously, not put their name on it, but to give a list of their history, of their life. Um, some people wrote a paragraph. Some my my my, my lady wrote basically a, a bulleted outline of all the stuff that she had done. Like some some people wrote three pages, how they were having wonderful physicians all their lives, how they wanted to give back, how they, they how they enjoyed all the medical students that ever helped them and came to see them around on the hospital and so on and so forth. So that was my first, that was my first body. Okay. was actual real anatomy. We did not have a cat lab like my uncle did anyway. And then next one was, 
next one was the lupus uh, patient that I did autopsy on. And then after that was, um, was uh, uh, a residency, an autopsy service. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the way that you and I have a, a connection, which is through Miami. So you went from being out in New York and then off to uh, eventually off to medical school in Missouri, right? I grew up in Philadelphia. Okay. And, and then I went to uh, medical school in Washington University in St. Louis, in Missouri, correct? And then down, and then Miami was a fellowship. And oh, sorry, that, sorry. Yeah, 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 was residency. So back to Connecticut and then down to Miami. Did you know someone in Miami? Like, how did you get the connection to Miami in this sort of fledgling field? Joe Davis is is uh, the person who started that office, and I'll have you talk more about him. But how how did you get that connection and sort of learn of that program and decide that you wanted to head down to Florida? Um, at the time, I don't know if it still exists, but there was AAMC or, or ACGME or whatever it was had a literally had a directory um, of all fellowships. For every, for every specialty, not just pathology, but for every specialty. And I looked up forensic pathology. And at that time there were, you know, uh, there were, uh, uh, uh she was around the country at that time, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, that was, uh, that was 90, uh, that was 94, 94. Yeah. That was 94, 95. Yeah. It was, it was 94 because it was two years ahead. And I just looked around and I looked at me and I sent out applications. Uh, to the places and uh, Miami invited me down. Uh, uh, Miami invited me down there. I'll, I'll say that uh, San Antonio also invited me to uh, interview down there, and I interviewed with uh, I interviewed with Vince uh, DeMeo, uh, and very interestingly, he asked me, Stephen, what do you what do you what do you see yourself doing in ten years?" And I said, and I said, I straight off, you know, at that time I had developed my own lecture on gunshot wounds, and I had read his book cover <laughs> to cover for the first time. I am. I have read it, you know, two or three times more since then, cover to cover. So to me, this guy was big. Yeah, I have he his was, book sitting he, right next to me right now, actually. We we, we all do. Okay. And Vin, and Vinny looks at me and says, Steve, what do you want to do in 10 years? I said, Vince, I say, Dr. DeMeo, I want to be the author on the third edition of your textbook. <laughs> and he gave me a funny look. Now, uh, Vinny's eyes kind of go, you know, higgledy piggledy. They don't, they don't, they didn't kind of moved con conjunctively and coordinately, but um, he gave me a weird, he gave me a weird look. And since that time, I, uh, I, and then Joe Davis, uh, he said, we'll let you know. And so then I went and interviewed down in Miami and I interviewed with the staff down there and then with Dr. Davis and he looked at me and said, Stephen, you want the job? And I said, I'll take it. The place was so fabulous. The building was so purpose driven. The weather was so beautiful down there. The caseload was incredible. You were sitting right on the campus of the University of Miami Medical Center. Um, uh, it was absolutely, you're, you know, close to the keys, every place else. It was really cool. So I, I called him, Dr. Davis, I'll take the job. And he, he offered it to me right there and then. That's before it was, there was, there was no match back then. For, there was no yeah, match up until this year. The match, is, the match is new. I actually had the same experience. That was, uh, I interviewed from like seven in the morning until 5 PM. And then I sat down with the, the chief when I was interviewing was uh, Dr. Emma Lou. And I sat down with her and she said, well, what'd you think? I said, I liked it. And she said, do you want the job? It's yours. And I said, okay, give me, give me like 15 minutes to think about it. And then I, uh, 
you know, called and made sure everyone else was okay with me moving away. And that's what I did. So I guess yeah. nobody else is going to have that experience from now on because of the match. No, no, you're, you're, you are exactly correct. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. I don't, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of neutral on it because there, there are 75, <coughs> there are 75 fellowship positions available, but we only filled, what would we fill this year? 45. Okay. Yeah. So, something like that. Something like that. And even good places didn't fill. And that's part of the vagaries of, of, of the match system. Um, that, so, you know, some internal medicine, really good internal medicine places don't fill or surgery places don't fill for whatever weird mathematical reason. So do I think that it's bad being in the match versus being able to make a personal connection with the, the, the program director to say, yes, I'd like you to, I want to recruit you personally to fill my positions. I think you're really good. And I want you to know that we think you're our quality of, of fellow versus I can guarantee you if you rank us number one, you're going to end up here, that sort of thing, which you're not supposed to do in the match anyway. Yeah. But you can, they, all the departments, all the directors always give hints that's like, oh, yeah, trust me, if you rank us highly, I don't think that you'll be disappointed, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, so we'll see how it goes along. We still, you know, we can't even get 75 people to apply per year. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's very strange. I'm really hoping that that changes soon. I was one of the people who pushed for the match thing to happen because I agree with you. There's a lot of major problems with the match system. There's a lot of weird, hinky stuff that happens. But I think that the bottom line is it helps eliminate some of the nepotism and bias in it. And at, at least it's worth a shot. If it turns out that it doesn't work, then so be it. We can always switch back. It's just not that hard to switch back. But, um, you know, it's the first year and we'll see how everyone did. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. You're exactly correct. So what was, what was Miami like, uh, I guess both as a city and as a fellowship back then. So you were there in 96, 97. So I was there at 96, 97 and, um, the place was young. It was vibrant. It was everything right out of literally right out of Miami Vice. So still full of Ferrari, cocaine. It's to loaded with cocaine, loaded with models, loaded with uh, money dripping off the plate, uh, dripping everywhere. Um, it was it was wild, free spirited, admixed with the residual of old Russian Jewish New York, South Florida. Okay, um, I got my, you know, I I I, I found. The closer that you live, that you looked for places closer to the beach on Miami Beach was um, get more expensive. So I was on the bay side of Miami Beach, and I and I came to uh, this apartment complex, and I walked up, and, and I had my little apartment renter's guide there in my hand, and I was just walking around looking at, for places, and I thought, well, this place was in my price range. Um, uh, you know, at that time, the salary was fifty or fifty-five thousand a year. Um, and I walked up to, I, I asked the, when it's the rental agent and, and they said, uh, I said, do you have any places? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to be here, uh, in a month, uh, working over at the medical center. And she said, ah, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Rosencrantz, she just passed away and her, her, and her kids came down from New York and they were, uh, you know, they're cleaning out her place and so they're done. And so we'll have the place turned around and, you know, painted and, 
updated and stuff that by the time you get here. You want to go? See, can I go see the place? Said, well, you can't go in yet because they're still having cleared out all their stuff, but it's all going to be removed. But here, I, here, just this is what the apartment. This is what it is. Just go up there. You can look in the windows. And this was a time when the the, the doors of each of the apartments opened outward onto the large terrace. Everybody walked on the outside of the building. There was no internal hallways. Oh, right, um, like a like a motel. Yeah, like 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 a big huge freaking 15 story motel. Anyway. Um, so I go up to the apartment and there's all this stuff sitting in boxes and I could see into the, into the apartment that there was still a ton of furniture, stuff like that in there as well. The kids had come and gotten everything they wanted. So everything that was there was, I hate to, I, I hate to say it. I was, I was going through the boxes of stuff. there, trying to see what this stuff, it looked like stuff from the sixties old New York stuff. And what I found out from looking in these boxes that were sitting up to be thrown away was that Mrs. Rosencrantz and her husband, he worked for the New York Transit Authority. He, um, he, they, he retired at age 65 and she was 92 when she passed away. And uh, they came down when he was 65. They lived in this one apartment for, she lived in this apartment for 28 years alone. She, she got widowed at some point. And lived there with all her stuff from her apartment from New York. And there it was, these old lamps with these, you know, these old antique lampshades with the, with the tassels on them and the, the floral prints and stuff. Old, old stuff there. Pictures, family pictures, all this. But the kids were throwing out. I mean, they were just getting rid of everything. It's like, oh, okay. Mm. And then I come back a month later and the place is painted. Um, it's got a microwave. It's got a new range in it and stuff like that. They had... They had done nothing to the place for 30 something years. And then now she finally passes away and I get her apartment. So Miami was the, the, the old and the vibrantly new, um, the, 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 what was it? The, um, of the medical center office. Um, oh gosh, Don, I forget what his name is. Old, old time guy who started it with Joe Davis. Um, we, uh, we went out to lunch once, uh, sorry, Norman Kassoff, um, uh, he came by and he, uh, actually, no, it wasn't, it wasn't Norman. Norman was not there at the time. Um, I forget who it was, but we went out to lunch. We went out to Wolfie's, the old New York deli on South Beach. And it was gone five, six years later, closed up shop. Okay. So that's what we'd see the old babushkas and the new young vibrant stuff. So Miami was exciting, exciting at that time. Old world, new world, immigrants, Russians, Romanians, you know, people desperately poor, people with blinding liquid wealth all over the place, just side by side, little, uh, little Havana, um, the beach, all that sorts of stuff. It was just, it was everything you'd expect it to be in the movies. Wow. That is such a, a beautiful and very specific way to describe what exactly I thought about Miami too. It's so interesting because it, it really is the same. All the stuff you said, I think still applies there's still money dripping off everything and there's cocaine everywhere and models everywhere. And the city is full of a lot of very, it feels like the sixties that just has some superimposed tech on it. And it there, it's just incredible looking. And I think that it's such a, uh, such a nice little story that you took over an apartment of someone who died when you got there. <laughs> and that's just, it, it really ties that together. What an interesting start and so you took this yep. apartment and then you started at this fellowship. And I, I know that you had a lot of experience with different medical stuff 
going into it, you'd done autopsies, um, had a lot of experience, but did you have any experience with the medical legal aspect, like going to crime scenes? Oh yeah. Well, as a fellow, of course, they, they wanted us to get to crime scenes as early as possible because you'd go out to crime for the first couple months, all the scenes that you went to, you went with a staff member and then they cut you loose to go to scenes on your own. So uh, one day, that's still uh, the case. Um, that's still what they do. That's, Correct. Um, so one day, uh, my co, uh, co-fellow, uh, Don Poyman, um, who's in, who's still working, he's in, in Virginia, uh, West Virginia. Um, he gets the first fellow scene of our year. And I was not in the morgue either that day. So Don says, you want to go to this scene with me? I said, okay, cool. What is it? So, so we head off and we go down to Miami beach and what it was, uh, you know, we, we go to the place, it's the middle of the day, it's sunny, it's bright, people walking around in their bathing suits, rollerblading back and forth, uh, city of Miami, uh, Miami Beach PD are there, they got the, we, we approach the place from the back, they've got everything roped off. Um, they can't rope off the street in front of because that's, you know, that's uh, A1A uh, right in front of the place. What it was, was a girl, uh, a young lady, who had broken up with her boyfriend who had cheated on her for the last time that she was going to tolerate. Um, he was apparently shacked up with one of her friends, but according to that, that girl, um, he was just pining over her and he's angrier and anger and anger thinking that she, that his, he, he thought of her as his property that he she was going to be with some other guy. So he needed to kill her so she could never be with another man. So he went to her place of business and she was the girl. Uh, she was, she was the counter worker at a smoothie store. Okay. And it was right on, um, it was right on, um, uh, Ocean Avenue. You could rollerblade in. They had designed it so you could rollerblade in, get your smoothie, rollerblade out. So this guy comes in the back. She is making a strawberry smoothie for a German tourist who had rollerbladed in and he was waiting for his, strawberry smoothly as this this guy walks in the back he grabs one of the butcher knives that she would had been used to cut up the fruit with flips her around they start arguing yelling at her and he plunges the blade straight into her chest straight through her sternum not through an intercostal face but through the bone of her sternum and the point just lodges like in the vertebral uh, column in front of this German tourist and the guy is standing there like totally like, oh my God, what's going on? And he just like skates out of there and is screaming for help and all that sort of stuff. The guy, the, the, the perpetrator runs out the back, yada, yada, yada. So they end up calling us. So, so Don, myself, and I think it might've been Valerie, Valerie Rao, who just retired a couple of years ago from Jacksonville. Um, we're all there. We're looking and I, and I walk into this scene. Don goes in first. He's got his cameras. He's taking photos and stuff like that. And I walk in and I look at her on the ground. They had, the, the EMTs had been there, but I'm looking at her. And at that moment, for an, abs- for an absolute 10 seconds, I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, why is this young girl laying in a big pool of strawberry syrup? She needs to get up. Hmm. And then I notice there's a, there's a knife handle sticking out of her chest. It was surreal. Wow. Because beyond, beyond her, you know, where I'm standing in the back of the, in the kitchen there, in the prep area, and where she's making this movie, beyond her, there are still people 
uh, rollerblading up and down this gorgeously bright, sunny day. And here's this girl laying in strawberry syrup, and she's not moving. What's going on here? And then, uh, then it's like, oh, she's dead. We're going to autopsy her. This is a crime scene. It was so surreal at that moment. And then after that, every other scene was just like, this is really cool. Let's think about the anatomy. Let's think about how the body uh, interacted with the environment. Let's look for, you know, the scars, trauma, evidence here that's going to be lost when we transport the body. But it became very much more professionalized. But that first moment, that first scene was completely surreal to me. Yeah, that's so interesting. You mentioned the the people sort of just outside the crime scene tape just going about their lives because that was one of the strange things for me. I, I, I think I had this idea that, when I get in there, there's going to be a dead body. I know how this is going to work. I had sort of built it up in my head and I had, honestly, I had watched a lot of different television shows. So I had a, a general idea of there's going to be people around the body. We're going to be taking pictures, taking notes, that kind of thing. So I had that, but what I wasn't ready for was everyone else that was not in the crime scene, just not, I mean, they were there, but they weren't in it, you know, like I could see people, like you said, they were just outside rollerblading or roller skating. I remember seeing people loading up groceries. I actually remember a crime scene in Miami where there was, um, there was, unfortunately there was a shooting related. It, it was a shooting that happened in a parking lot and they had put, uh, you know, the yellow tape up around the parking lot. And I was standing there standing over a, a body with a, a covering on it. And there was a bunch of markers around on all the different casings on the ground and somebody just some Miami citizen just went under the crime scene tape and the detectives were like, you can't come in here. And he goes, I just need to get something from my car. And he just waved <laughs> off the detectives. And I thought, man, that is just so Miami and it's sweltering hot. It's, it's 110 degrees or whatever it is. And I'm in my dress clothes, sweating up a storm. And this guy yep. just needs to grab a soda from his car or something. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's very surreal, very strange thing. And I just, before we move away from Miami, I do have to ask, cause you got a chance to work with people that I've heard stories about for my entire career. Do you have any specific memories or specific uh, bits of advice from Joe Davis or, or Bruce Heima that you want to pass along to anyone that's listening or just to me? I'll tell you, I'll tell you one, one, one thing from each Joe, Joe, uh, Joe and I got to be very close. We, I, I talked. Uh, I got into computers there, and I started building my own computers. And Joe wanted to build one with me later, um, but this is this is before USB. So we had to have all the jumpers correct. We had to have the interrupts correct. We had to have the you know the, the PCI, the SCSI, and all that sort of stuff correct. I mean, you had to really know what was going on with these things. And Joe was interested in it, so he would when he had a workshop on the back of his place. And Joe was a big time gun enthusiast and he would he would come and his his wife had his wife had that uh, parkinson's so joe did all the cooking so he'd invite me down cook me dinner and then we'd go back out into the workshop and would put I, i'd bring him i'd bring him he brought all he bought all the stuff i told him to buy and then he and i would then put the computers together like that together and then it would get dark and then we'd go sit in his backyard and he would show me his guns and he had some incredible long rifles, his star, you know, just gorgeous stuff to that one from his match rifle days and stuff like that. Anyway, so we'd go back out and uh, sit in his um, yard in the evening time and have something cool to drink and whatever it was. And he'd be telling me the story. Joe, Joe made a big name with, um, with, uh, with, uh, 
uh, pesticides exposure with the migrant workers and the farm workers in, in South Florida. So he was big in environmental death and poisons and stuff like that. And Joe is, we're sitting there at the front of this little, this little frog pond he had. It was maybe, you know, 15 feet by four feet, something like that. And um, he, uh, the evening got cooler and he's pointing out to me all the plants on his one and a half acre property that, and, and telling me all the ways that they, you will die if you either touch, fall on, chew on, ingest, breathe the spores of or whatever. He had every poisonous plant from the Everglades planted on his property. Oh, he had like a poisonous and, garden. Yes, the whole thing was poisonous. Oh the whole God. thing. And, and it was his and, and and his son maintained it for him. His son was a did, did all the mowing, he did all the landscaping, he did all the fertilizing, all that sort of stuff. Joe would point out to me, um, uh, and that he didn't have any bars on his windows, on his house, because this bush that he had planted under each window of his house on the exterior windows, it would peel your skin off if you got the essential oils from the, if you crush the leaves and get the oils on your skin, it would peel your skin off. Wow. That was his, Lovely. that was his, that was his security system for his house. So I just, I just never forget that. It's one of the highlights of like, how do I get out of here? I'm not gonna. I can't trip over <laughs> town. Anyway, so I'm talking with Bruce Heimer, who was who was uh, my. Uh, you share an you share a common uh, microscope room in between doctor offices, and as a fellow, the person that shares your microscope with is your your main, you know, faculty contact where user cases you discuss stuff and all that. And that was Bruce Heimer, and Bruce became chief medical examiner after Middleman um, left, and. Um, Bruce, uh, Bruce was telling me a story about, um, uh, what was it? Uh, I, had, I had a case uh, of a guy that had kind of accelerated atherosclerosis from, from um, a horrible diet. But what happened was he got injured and then his atherosclerosis just sort of accelerated after that. And we were talking about it and talking about temp- causal and temporal relationships between causes of death. And he told me this story about when he was, he did an autopsy and it was going to go to civil court, civil trial. And so he was being, he ha- was having a pretrial conference with the uh, defendant's um, attorney in his office. And, the def- and I think it was a chemical exposure on the job and the defendant's attorney and the guy had natural disease as well. So the defense attorney for this trial said to Dr. Hyman, he said, how do you know that it was my client's, chemical exp- a chemical release that killed this guy. That, that, that's what he died from. Because you certified that his cause of death was chemical exposure and manner of death was accident. And it wasn't his horrible heart disease, which clearly he'd been having for years before that. How do you know that? And Bruce said, Bruce happened to have the guy's medical record there in his office on the credenza in the back, which was, he said, was at least a foot thick. And he said he he slapped his hand on it and said it's because every page in this guy's medical record that led up to his death happened the day that he was exposed to your company's chemicals on the job. Huh. So that's how we certify the cause of death of this guy as an accidental exposure. And I remember that to this day. And and, and you and I talk about this is what is the inciting event. Uh, that lead, leads to an unbro- leads through an unbroken chain of events 
to the person's final death, no matter what the interval of time is, be it 15 minutes, be it 15 years. And, you know, you and I discussed this, and that is a, a major and guiding principle for forensic pathology that I use to this day. What started the whole train down the track? And I, and I got that from Bruce Hyman. So I always thank him for that. You know, Dr. P, you have such a really a nice way of connecting to people. And you tell these stories like, you know, you, you remember people's names and you set the scene and you talk about the lives that they have, you know, outside of the moment you have with them, whether it's connecting with the fountain pens or through building computers and in a little shed out in the poison garden, or if it's even digging through and finding the old lampshades of the lady whose apartment you took, that's a, it's a really, it shows a lot of connection to these people as people, not just as your cases. And that makes me wonder how, like, is this job hard for you when you connect that strongly to people as people? Um, as you can tell, I am a storyteller. And what I tell our investigators is, is I want you to tell me the story of how this person lived and how this person died. And to do that, you have to connect with the person, who they are, who their friends are, what their family life was, what their profession is, what their habits were, and all that. And all of that gives you the gestalt of the body that's on your table in front of you. It could be as simple as the person had, you know, a herniated disc and they had, un- they had bad, they, they had a failed laminectomy and then they became a drug, you know, a, a, a pill addict because they couldn't get any uh, uh, relief. And then they ended up going into methadone and then heroin and they finally overdosed. It could be as simple as that, or it can be as complicated as uh, you can ever want to make it. But you learn about the person and how, and you tell the story of their life and death. And that's the best way to connect with your patient these are our patients, they're the students, but they're patients, and how you can tease out of it what is important to determine for their, for their death, as well as is there something there that is of a wider nature? Is there something with more societal uh, impact that we need to pay attention to um, as well? And that's also part of our mandate is to, is to, like I said at the beginning of this interview, that we are the... Watch, last watchdogs of society and things that can help or so things that can be a risk or hurt other people that are living because you want to prevent any more deaths. And I, I've had, in, I've had some cases where I was able to intervene over the years and prevent other injuries and, and deaths and get some products off the, um, and get off the market that would be otherwise harmful. But you have to tell the story. It means you get, you have to get to know your decedent. So with all the things that you've seen, has it, led you to change the way you're living or make any changes in, in your life? No, I just imagine all the goofy things that I do in, in my life. Yeah, 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 I'm going to die like this. <laughs> you know, I, I, I talked to the guy that was doing this and it's like, I hope that doesn't happen to me. <laughs> but it doesn't sound like uh, it doesn't stop you. <laughs> no, I, you know, some things I do, I'm risk averse to, but no, I, 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 am not a big risk taker, but, yeah, I think about those things, but it doesn't stop you from enjoying your life. It's it's all risk benefit. I put it that way. How do you? I'll I'll, I'll I'll say I'll say that there's one time when uh, when uh, up in vacation in Vermont, and uh, that my, my then father-in-law had a um, had some uh, 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 snowmobiles, 
and snowmobiling is so much fun. So we're uh, um, coming back to the house um, and um, coming off the trail, the snowmobile trail that went through the back of the property, and he, the, 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 the piles of snow had just been plowed up to clear off the driveway and, and uh, the turnaround and stuff like that. So I thought, hey, I just like you see kids running into big piles of leaves. They run into them, and then big pile of leaves goes straight up in the air. Fun, fun, fun. Well, I thought I'd take the snowmobile, and I'd go through this freshly plowed snow, and I'd create a big, huge spray of snow powder all over the place. Little did I, and I was a novice at it, so I didn't realize that those damn skids on the front of the thing, they don't go through snow. They go on top of it. <laughs> so, so I, at the very end of the, the last, you know, like 30 yards, uh, before I get onto the prop, get onto the prop coming off the trail, I gun it, thinking I'm going to go blasting right through it. And I'm gunning it, and all of a sudden, I'm going up in the freaking air. <laughs> oh my God. And I am, I am maybe 25 feet in the air, and I swear to God, at the apex, I think two things. Wiley Coyote, and this is how I'm going to die. <laughs> Um, because the, the, the thing underneath the thing underneath was cloud concrete. And it's like, and then how am I going to stop? Because there's a little lake right up beyond that. I'm like, I'm going to either get my skull crushed. Or I'm going to go drown in the lake and I come down. And it's like, I'm, I'm getting prepared for death, prepared for death. And all of a sudden that the, the rear, uh, the rear tread hit the thing, the uh, shocks get it, the skids hit the ground and the thing just goes straight down the driveway. Easy as pie. And I'm thinking, this machine is magnificent. <laughs> it just saved my life. That's terrifying. I, I think uh, the problem there is you should just never get on one of those machines. <laughs> they're a lot of fun. I'll tell you that. They're a lot of fun. Don't, don't go over the edge of a mountain, but they're a lot of fun. <laughs> what was it like for your children growing up with a dad who, did, who does what you do? Did they know what you do? I mean, you know, I, the obviously they know now, but. In the beginning, they, had, they knew that they're that their parents were both physicians and doctors. And they, you know, what do I know? What, 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 I didn't know what my uncle and aunt did or any of my other physician family members did. I just knew they were doctors. They, and you, you, you personalize it. So like, oh, they must be doing something like the doctor that treats me when I go to the doctor's office, that sort of thing. So they didn't know about dead bodies and all that sort of stuff. They weren't in, in, until they were probably early teenage years you know, late middle school, early high school, did they know that I, I work with dead people, dead bodies? And they would ask you, Dad, what do you do? And I said, well, I work with people that get injured so terribly that they don't live, that they, that they, that they die. And I tried to figure out why they die. And that was a good enough explanation for them. And they went off, you know, running around the house or doing whatever the next thing that they were interested in. And so that's how I explained it to them. Hmm. Um, now, because, you know, I see, kids, uh, I mean, actually people that are traumatized to death, I'm probably, the, I was probably the least sympathetic parent to when they fell down, scraped their knees, you know, cut their, cut their, one day one, one of my sons chasing the other, I had twins and chasing the other one and he slipped on the floor and went head first into uh, the edge of the wall, which has a little metal, you know, support to it. And he got a bruise and a little, you know, one centimeter cut. I'm looking at it and it's like, oh, that's nothing. Don't worry about it. It'll heal over. I put some topical anesthetic on it and I, I had some steri strips and I put some steri and I, you know, cleaned it off and put some steri strips on it. And he was fine. You know, I, I, I was, I, I was the least sympathetic person to my kids 
that you could possibly make. Okay. I mean, I, I, honestly, that makes sense. You know, we see, uh, we see how bad things can get. And honestly, that was something in the ER is, uh, I used to see people and go, you know, I didn't think this was survivable, but it turns out that it is. And they're willing to wait in the waiting room for 12 hours, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly correct. So how has this job influenced your hobbies? I know you still collect fountain pens and you probably got, you know, a hundred or something now. 800. 800. Sure. Why not have 800 fountain pens? That's great. Why not? What other, what other hobbies are, are you still doing things? Do you basically did this job influence your hobbies or are you still doing just whatever floats your boat? Well, the good thing about this job in fountain pens is that this is still, there, there's, there, there's no electronic medical record. All our records are, are evidentiary. So I, use, I write every day. I take notes every day. I draw a diagram. I take telephone notes, all that sorts of stuff. Um, you, you young whippersnappers like editing your own stuff on the computer <laughs> and you lose, you lose the art of the handwritten note, but I still take notes. But that, that allowed me to, but because of the amount of writing that I would do every day, I've enjoyed my fountain pen use over, over my career. And I still enjoy it. So that has fed that hobby like, like crazy. I mean, you, you would never notice by looking at it. If I'm using a, you know, $35 student pen or a, you know, an $800, you know, German Pelican anyway. Um, but, and like I said before, pathologists are the best cooks amongst them, all the medical specialties. And one thing that I wanted when I, when I, when I started off, uh, uh here in, um, Texas was, um, I want, I, I hated, I hated the Toronox that we all use in Miami. Right. Um, right. It, 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 why they? Why did they use that for us? Because it was fourteen dollars and ninety five cents in bulk, and they would have them in a drawer there, and they'd hand it to you. This is your knife. They'd etch your initials onto it, so that was your knife. You had to sharpen it. No one else would use it, and so on and so forth. And at the end of the year, they gave you a commemorative version of that that put on a plaque on the wall. I hated that thing. It was <laughs> flexible, like it was flexible like a bow saw. Hated it. Um, could never get a good edge on it, no matter what. So I determined when I first started on my first. Uh, so when I when I started um, Alabama, when I started there, but then um, when I got to Texas, I said, you know what? We didn't have a lot of room in the morgue in, in Alabama, so I didn't have a lot of places spread out my stuff. But when I got to Texas, we had our own building, <coughs> and I said, I want a better knife. I want to, and I want to be able to sharpen or whatever. So I went and I researched. I saw the knife that I wanted, and it was an old. It, it's 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 a knife um, that was stiff, and I wanted long to make these long draw cuts through the tissue, so that I could not, you know, not get any saw marks on it in case I get something really nice, and I want to take a really nice photo for either teaching or or publication. I just wanted one draw cut, so the surface, the cut surface, looked beautiful under photography. And the only thing that I could find that available was a cheese knife by Dexter Russell. And the cheese knife, if you know what that is, is what you get the wheels of cheese with and it has two handles on a handle on either side. And then you cut the large wheel into wedges and then package up and weigh each wedge and put them out for sale. So I uh, bought one, 55 bucks um, uh, from one of the restaurant supply places. And I went to a machine shop uh, close to the office and I just had them cut the, uh, cut one handle off. So I had this, I had this 15 inch long rectangular straight edge knife 
um, that did not flick at all. And, um, and I said, okay, this is my knife. I'm going to become a great sharpener. I'm going to figure out how to keep this blade razor sharp. And I went through honing rods and I can't even imagine all this stuff. I can't remember all the stuff I went through. I ended up with a bench grinder that I had reversed. So it turned away from me so I could put it on the top of the thing. I got that. I got two wheels, a grinding wheel, a stone wheel, and then a strapping wheel, which was, um, which was, um, uh, laminated cardboard. And I could get a good edge on that. And it would last one autopsy. Razor sharp, one autopsy. I have to sharpen all the time and all the time and all. I hate it. And, but I figured, you know, I'll become a better sharpener and I'll figure it out. Anyway, years go by and I'm looking around and I, and I see a picture on Facebook of a guy who was knives, who's making knives for kosher slaughter. Okay. By the, the, the kosher butchers are called shochets. And the knife that they, the knives that they use are called chalef, C-H-A-L-E-S. And the chalef for, and they were, they're small, medium, and large, one for chip, poultry, one for lamb, one for cow, large animal. And they go up to 26 inches long. Shows me this, he puts up, posts a picture of it. And he's like, that's my autopsy knife. That's what I made. That's what it looks like. And come to later, I find out that a lot of shochets who do it part-time, they want to spend a lot of money on it. They would do what I did. They get the Dexter Russell cheese knife, cut one handle off, and they have a, they have a chalet. Anyway, so this guy is showing it. It's a custom-made chalet. I said, you know what? I want to do that. I'm going to get a knife. I'm going to get it. Uh, I want to, I want to get that custom-made as well. So that comes along at a time when I go off and, and, I'm, and I'm cooking a lot. And I'm moving from Chicago cutlery pieces of garbage knives to then global um, reasonable knives because of Anthony Bourdain wrote about global is the best knife in Kitchen Confidential. Um, and then I move up to Shun. Here's the geometry. Here's the knife. What's, what's great about it? So I take a trip to New York and I go to Brooklyn Kitchen and I go buy myself uh, some knives. I buy a Glee Stain, a Makusta, and a Kikuichi. And when I get them home, this thing is fabulous. The edge holding is incredible. It's not like this piece of crap shun uh, that chips all the time and is it, it, it's just horrible. And I can't keep the, the global sharp. But this Kikuichi is fabulous. I get the stone. And then I, it, literally the light goes on in my head. Said, oh, my God. What knife do I use in my most often in my life? It's my autopsy knife. So I find a local knife maker and I say, I want a better autopsy knife. I need something. So I have him make him a knife, a chalet for me out of uh, 440C steel, holds an incredible edge versus the garbage that the Dexter Russell is made out of because they're stamped from maybe at best 440A or maybe even 80 CRMOV13, which is garbage steel because they make 10,000 of them a day. Um, and he makes it, and oh my God, the, the, the light just goes on. It's like, it's not the sharpener, it's the steel. And then I go back to this knife maker here in Houston. And I say, can you make me a chef's knife? So I design a chef's knife. All this time, I'm just enjoying using my halak, which I still have in my office. So I'll show it to you one day. Um, um, and he makes this knife for me. And I then uh, say to him, this is great. Will you show me how to make a knife? I said, yeah, I'll show you how to do that. I said, how? And then he shows me how to do it. I buy all this stuff. And I say, can I make knives here with you? I'll, 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 I'll cut you a deal. If I buy steel, I'll buy steel for you. If I buy handle material, I'll buy handle material for you. If I buy belts, grinding belts, I'll buy grinding belts for you. 
And he said, no problem. So I went to, I would go to his shop and if I bought, you know, belts, I'd buy from him and order stuff for him and stuff like that. So we developed a good relationship and he showed me the basics of knife making. And then during that period of time, I'm, I'm acquiring my own uh, machinery. And then I develop my own style. And then I develop a following. <laughs> then I start making chef's knives. I showed my chef's knives around to people at Dromgul at the pen store because, you know, it's a very, you know, high-end clientele. All of a sudden, they all want to buy knives from me. Um, and then I, I designed my own autopsy knives for doing autopsies, for eviscerating and for uh, shorter ones for eviscerating. Then I developed my own scalpels. And then I developed my longer blades for cutting organs afterwards. And so that hobby started off in the kitchen and autopsy suite and has gone full circle to now that I've got, you know, 2,200 people on my waiting list for chef's knife. You have 2,000 people? Is that what you just said? 2,200, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, there goes my hope of ever getting one of these knives. <laughs> and, yes, I, I do have some orders. I've, ma I've made them for several pathologists uh, around the world. Uh, like Paul Botterell down in Australia has got one and uh, uh, some other people around the country have them. And I also have orders for Halef, for the Shokhev, that they want my knives because they're still using garbage knives that they get, that they sometimes they inherit from the guy who teaches them and they want something made out of better steel. So that's, that's my, that's my autopsy kitchen passion hobby is now knives. Interesting. Well, uh, maybe one day, maybe I'll put it in order soon and then I'll get it when I retire. It'll be my retirement gift oh. to myself. Oh, so, so the gratuitous plug is Houston Edgeworks. Houston Edgeworks. Well, I'll definitely put that in the show notes too. Okay. HoustonEdgeworks.com. Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, it's not like you're hurting for business, but I'm sure <laughs> anyone who listens will, uh, certainly you made a good sell and I still use the cheap knife that you were talking about, uh, at the beginning that you hate and I hate it too, but you know, I just have to get it sharpened. I, uh, you just look, you can sharpen a credit card that will cut a, a, an onion and a tomato. And I keep telling you this and you, okay, maybe it's my fault. Cause I don't sit there and, and drag you by the short hairs into the morgue, but you can sharpen it. If I keep, if I turn you into a good knife sharpener, it'll be, it'll make your life so much more pleasant in the morgue, especially when you're cutting in. And then whatever part of the reason, part of the reason was I learned to be a good sharpener when I was in Galveston was because the other pathologist, Charles Harvey, who was there, he wanted to use the 12 inch razor blades that are only made in Japan for, you know, it was really for surge pass, but you know, oh, I know what 20, you're talking about. The long blades for of, a surge pass. Yeah. So it's long blades, a pack of 20 of those razor blades, they're disposable. Oh, at that time, they're 175 bucks. Wow. Okay. For 20 blades. And it's like, you know, disposable is one thing, you know, those are hellaciously expensive. So my $55, my $55, uh, homemade Dexter Russell knife, um, lasted, you know, 13 years. I, if I was just able to keep it sharp. I didn't realize that those, uh, long blades were quite so expensive because I actually, that's the, that's what we used in, uh, hospital autopsies when I was in residency. So yeah, maybe they should have switched to using at yeah. just some of those uh, cheese knives like you were talking about. So we are past our hour and uh, I think that's okay. You know, who cares about that? But I do have a couple of questions I always ask at the end sure. of the interview, just because, you know, normally, and 
we end up talking about some heavy stuff. And uh, this time it's actually not been too heavy, but I'm going to ask anyway. So if you weren't a medical examiner, if you weren't a forensic pathologist and medical examiner, what would you want to do both in and outside of medicine? Uh, probably, you know, I'm, I'm anatomy oriented. Okay. I love human anatomy and nobody gets to see more human anatomy than a forensic pathologist. But I guess the next highest level of anatomy exposure would be a general surgeon. So I probably would have, I probably would have stuck with both general and vascular surgery. And what about outside of medicine? What would you do? As a profession or as a hobby? Uh, as a profession is what I meant, but I'll take hobby. Well, you know, my hobbies you now are my avocation or my other hobby is, you know, knife making, something mechanical. And then, of course, you know, I'm, I'm you know, tomato pepper farmer. Uh, like crazy. Um, See, that's what you would, would do. I You'd would, be a farmer. No, no, I would. I would. I wouldn't do that. I, you know, outside of medicine, um, sometimes I can get pretty argumentative. So maybe the law. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine that. No, I, 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 I never take a contrary. I'm a total conciliator to everybody. <laughs> I never take it. I never kind of try to contradict anybody. <laughs> All right, tell me about a time in your life whether it's related to being a doctor or not, that you laughed really hard. It doesn't have to make me laugh. I don't have to get it. I'm not asking for a joke. I just want to hear about a time that you laughed really hard. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, other than the, the various comedy shows I've been to, those don't count, I guess. <laughs> um, okay, I was, um, I was uh, in high school, big into tennis, and we would, we would take a, take tennis lessons on Saturday morning at the uh, Levy Tennis Pavilion um, at University of Pennsylvania, my cousins and I, because uh, we were, we lived, they lived in the western, they lived in the suburbs outside Philadelphia, and I live, we, we just lived inside the Philadelphia line on the west side, so we would, um, my my uncle or aunt would drive them in to, uh, and then pick me up and we'd go there in the morning for a tennis lessons, and that that week was um, the U.S. Pro Indoor Tennis uh, Championship, the U.S. Pro Indoor Tennis Tennis Tournament at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Runs and eight in the back, so there's twelve tennis courts there. So all the regular stuff, everybody was off in the back, kind of kind of crunched into four four courts, letting all the professionals warm up and practice and stuff like that. We got to see all the professionals. I actually walked in, and there was uh, Chris Everett and John Lloyd you know, just coming out of the freaking, uh, uh, locker rooms, um, and, you know, after having that to practice up. So my cousins and I are there, we're up, there's a, there's a, there's a raised platform in the middle between two tennis courts on either side where you could, you know, sit and relax and watch people play and stuff like that. And there is this, there is Andres Gomez, tall six foot three Spanish uh, guy playing with his coach and this young blonde German kid, comes on with his coach uh, and uh, um, uh, I forget what the coach's name was, but this, and this is on, it's like concrete. Okay. And, and this, and they're practicing. And so they're, they're, so they're going half courts with their, with their coach and their practice partners back and forth. And this young kid, this young blonde German kid is diving for everything just on the concrete. And he's going after, uh, and he's going after, um, uh, he's eating his elbows up, he's eating his knees up, 
It's like this practice. What the hell are you doing? And um, all of a sudden, Andres, this guy makes a diving lunge for something. This blonde German guy makes a diving lunge for something. And Andres Gomez makes a snide comment to him across the net to him. He says, with his Spanish accent, he says, superstar. And then this, the German player turns back to him and because it was uh, clearly he was being condescending to him. He turns back to him and he says, super dick in German. <laughs> and, um, and I, and I, I, I was taking German at that time. And, uh, so I, I knew what he said. And, and I just, I was just roaring in laughter when he said that to him. It was just hilarious at that time. <laughs> that you, that you, and Gomez at that time was like number, I forget, like seven or number five in the, in the world or something like that. It wasn't until later, and it wasn't until Wimbledon of that year that that blonde guy was Boris Becker, and he won Wimbledon that year. Yet another awesome story. Well, <laughs> I I really appreciate it. I know we ran a little long. I, I'm I hope that didn't uh, interfere with your day too much. But thank you so much for doing the podcast with me, and thank you for telling everyone what it's been like for you becoming a medical examiner and just taking us uh, through your life and your stories. I really appreciate it. Terrific. Well, I was happy to, happy to do it. Is there, uh, are there any websites, any other plugs you want to give, any social media you want to share? No, not, not at all. Okay. Just, you know, just my, just my, uh, you can follow, uh, you can follow Houston Networks on Instagram um, and on uh Facebook. All right. Houston Edgeworks on Instagram and Facebook. And if you want to learn more about what we do, you can go to reddit.com slash r slash forensic pathology. Or if you're interested in forensics and you don't necessarily want to be a forensic pathologist, you can always go to r slash forensics. And there's a lot of forensic professionals there that can help uh, tell you more about what they do. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. And we'll see you next time on Becoming a Medical Examiner.